Uh, 1 Kings 18, 25 to 46. And that's page 360 in the Church Bibles. So that's 1 Kings 18, starting at verse 25. Elijah said to the prophets of Baal, Choose one of the bulls and prepare it first, since there are so many of you. Call on the name of your God, but do not light the fire. So they took the bull given them and prepared it. Then they called on the name of Baal from morning till noon. O Baal, answer us, they shouted. But there was no response. No one answered. And they danced around the altar they had made. At noon, Elijah began to taunt them. Shout louder, he said. Surely he is a god. Perhaps he is deep in thought, or busy, or traveling. Maybe he's sleeping and must be awakened. So they shouted louder and slashed themselves with swords and spears, as was their custom, until their blood flowed. Midday passed, and they continued their frantic prophesying until the time for the evening sacrifice. But there was no response. No one answered. No one paid attention. Then Elijah said to all the people, Come here to me. They came to him, and he repaired the altar of the Lord, which was in ruins. Elijah took twelve stones, one for each of the tribes descended from Jacob, to whom the word of the Lord had come, saying, Your name shall be Israel. With the stones he built an altar in the name of the Lord, and he dug a trench around it, large enough to hold two seers of seed. He arranged the wood, cut the bowl into pieces, and laid it on the wood. Then he said to them, Fill four large jars with water, and pour it on the offering and on the wood. Do it again, he said, and they did it again. Do it a third time, he ordered, and they did it the third time. The water ran down around the altar and even filled the trench. At the time of sacrifice, the prophet Elijah stepped forward and prayed, O Lord, God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known today that you are God in Israel and that I am your servant and have done all of these things at your command. Answer me, O Lord, answer me so that these people may know that you, O Lord, are God and that you are turning their hearts back again. Then the fire of the Lord fell and burned up the sacrifice, the wood, the stones, and the soil, and also licked up the water in the trench. When all the people saw this, they fell prostrate and cried, The Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is God. Then Elijah commanded them, Seize the prophets of Baal. Don't let anyone get away. They seized them, and Elijah had them brought down to the Kishon Valley and slaughtered there. And Elijah said to Ahab, Go, eat and drink, for there is the sound of a heavy rain. So Ahab went off to eat and drink, but Elijah climbed to the top of Carmel, bent down to the ground, and put his face between his knees. Go and look towards the sea, he told his servant. And he went up and looked. There is nothing there, he said. Seven times, Elijah said, go back. The seventh time, the servant reported, a cloud as small as a man's hand is rising from the sea. So Elijah said, go and tell Ahab, hitch up your chariot and go down before the rain stops you. Meanwhile, the sky grew black with clouds. The wind rose, a heavy rain came on, and Ahab rode off to Jezreel. 
the power of the Lord came upon Elijah, and tucking his cloak into his belt, he ran ahead of Ahab all the way to Jezreel. This is the word of the Lord. Before we start, I'll lead us in a prayer. This is a a verse from 1 Corinthians, uh, the Apostle Paul's writing about the Old Testament, and he says this, he says, Now these things occurred as examples, to keep us from setting our hearts on evil things as they did. Do not be idolaters. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that it is so rich, so diverse, that it spans history. But Father, please help us to respond to your word rightly, as the Apostle Paul reminds us here that these things are examples for us, that they warn us of that tendency of idolatry in our hearts. So Father, as we come tonight, please do give us understanding of your word. Please help me to explain clearly. Help us all to understand what you're saying. But Father, by the help of your Holy Spirit, would you change our hearts to flee idolatry, to flee to you? And we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. In 2015, the football club Leicester City began a season where they would um, need to play at the top of their game just to stay in the Premier League. Uh, the year before, they had been promoted to the top league, but they were almost relegated after only one season. They spent the Christmas of 2014 at the bottom of the relegation zone, and only a series of victories at the end of the season secured their safety. And in 2015, in the next season, it seemed more than likely that history would repeat itself. But, as many of us know, As the season started, they made an exceptional start. Their striker, Jamie Vardy, scored 13 goals in the first 11 matches, breaking the Premier League record up to that point. And they had victory after victory. And as they did, some, like Gary Lineker, uh, pondered whether the impossible might happen, whether they might finish at the top. And as more and more big clubs fell to Leicester City, the impossible began to look possible. And in May 2016, with almost the whole nation behind them, all apart from Tottenham fans, they got enough points to finally win the Premier League. That was a feat that at the start of the season, they were given odds of 5,000 to 1 to be able to do. That's less likely than finding, Elvis, uh, finding out that Elvis is still alive. See, we love, don't we? We love stories like that. We love stories of the underdog winning. The idea that a team like Leicester City can rise up and defeat the big clubs, it's a story that captures our imagination. We we love it, don't we? Because it shows the true brilliance of a team like that, a true brilliance that we might otherwise miss. And our passage this evening is another story of the underdog gaining victory. It's all about this battle between two gods, between Baal and the Lord. But do you know what? It's not a fair fight. 
The odds are stacked against the Lord. Now, we've had the story read out to us. We know how it's going to end. We know that the Lord shows himself to be God. But coming into this contest, it wouldn't seem that way. The dice were loaded against him. See, there are 450 prophets of Baal versus one prophet of the Lord, Elijah. And the prophets of Baal are on Mount Carmel, which was where Baal's altar was. It's like they were playing at Baal's home ground. And the prophets of Baal have one dry altar and hundreds, 450 prophets praying, crying out for hours where Elijah is alone with one soaking wet altar. It was not a fair contest. But by the end, we see this apparent underdog reveal his true brilliance. Now, in the run-up to Easter uh, on Sunday evenings, we're looking at this figure, the prophet Elijah. Uh, Elijah was a prophet, uh, a messenger from God, and he was sent to Israel, the, uh, the top part, the, the northern kingdom of the divided nation. And uh, we said a couple of weeks ago that Elijah comes at the low point in that nation's history. Ahab is king, and he is turned away from the Lord, to another god, to Baal. And Elijah's ministry is in that context, and it starts by bringing judgment because of Ahab's adultery with other gods. How does the judgment come? Well, in chapter 17, Elijah announces a drought on the land. There will be no rain, no food, and empty stomachs for three years. But as Tim showed us last week in 18 verse 1, the fortunes of the nation are going to change. God announces that he was, he's going to have mercy and send rain again. But there's a problem. See, if God just sends the rain, it won't have dealt with the cause of his judgment. It won't have actually dealt with his people's hearts. See, if the rain comes, imagine what the people would do. They will just say that their, their God, Baal, has finally delivered. In other words, it will reinforce their idolatry. So before God sends the rain, he wants to demonstrate something else. He wants us to see that idols are nothing, and only he is God. And he does that in this dramatic contest. And I want us to see three things from this contest. First that idols will demand our lives and deliver nothing. Secondly, the Lord delivers on his terms. And third and finally, the Lord gives life by giving himself. First of all then, idols demand your life and deliver nothing. Now, we saw last week that Elijah, in verse 21, caused the people to stop wavering between God's, uh, their God's and the Lord. See, the people make the mistake of thinking, and maybe some of us do this, that they can kind of have their cake and eat it, that they can commit to other gods, that they can kind of feel and pretend to be God's people, but really deep down, they've got their hearts set on something else. And Elijah knows the crime of that. He knows it's spiritual idolatry, uh, adultery. And so he calls for this challenge to stop people sitting on the fence. You heard it read out. There's going to be two sacrifices, Elijah says, one to Baal and one to the Lord, and each is going to be set out on an altar, 
And he says that the God who responds to the sacrifice with fire will show that they're truly God. Now, I don't know about you, but when I read this, I thought, why on earth do these prophets agree to this? I mean, they must surely know what's going to happen. They, they must surely know that nothing's going to happen. They're going to get embarrassed. Why, why on earth do they agree to it? They seem pretty keen. And the answer I came up with is this. I think they believed that their God, Baal, would perform. And as I looked further, I saw why. See, the sign that Elijah asked for is Baal's speciality. In the ancient world, Baal uh, was the god of the rain and the dew, and he was, um, people thought that he was the one who produced lightning. Now, just to show you this, on your handouts, um, you'll see this picture here. This is from a few hundred years before this incident was written, so it's very, very old, and it's a picture of Baal. Um, here he is, there's his hat we saw a couple of weeks ago, and um, at the right of that picture you'll see something that looks a bit like a lightning bolt. And that's because people thought that he was the one who sends lightning. Do you make that out? Can you see it? Yes? It's not just me, is it? Good. So this was kind of like a tap-in for Baal. All he had to do was just send one of his lightning bolts that he's done before. But what happens? Well, they cry out again and again, all morning, and there's no response. I mean, just imagine this, 450 of Baal's prophets praying, shouting, and they get nothing back. And I love this. Elijah starts to joke in verse 27. Shout louder, he said. Surely is a God. Perhaps he's deep in thought, or busy, or traveling. Maybe he's sleeping and must be awakened. It's a bit sarcastic. It's the equivalent, I suppose, of the terrorists shouting out, who are you? Who are you? But it's sad, isn't it? Because instead of these prophets seeing the foolishness of what they're doing, they commit even more fervently to proving that their idol really is God. Look at verse 28. So they shouted louder and slashed themselves with swords and spears, as it was their custom, until their blood flowed so they cut themselves, they get themselves into a frenzy, and we're told it's this graphic image of their blood flowing. But for all their effort, we read at the end of verse 29, there was no response. No one answered, no one paid attention. I don't know about you, but when I read this, I think the prophets, they, they seem so foolish. What a tragic thing to do. We think, of course they're not going to get an answer, but it, it doesn't stop them, does it? Given everything, even, uh, even their lives we read at the end of this, to trying to prove that their idol was worth something. But actually, this is the nature of idols. They demand everything from us, but they give no answer. If you've been with us over the last couple of weeks, um, you would have heard that idols, other gods, like Baal, are very much around today. Of course, we, we might not have statues in our houses or temples in our cities, but we harbor idols within our hearts. Well, how do we do this? Well, it's when we make a good thing a God thing. When we take some good gift of God 
and distort it and elevate it, letting it absorb our hearts and imaginations, when we let it become more important to us than God. If you're not convinced of that, let me give you an example. Let's take, for example, work. Work is a good gift. It's not a curse. It's a good gift of God. But we know often that work can become an idol. How do we do that? Well, it's when we let it give us our ultimate purpose or status as a human being. That's when it gets elevated and distorted to what it's not meant to be. And there are plenty of people, I've done it myself, who get caught up in that idolatry of work. We think to ourselves that if I succeed in my exams, if only I get those predicted grades, we kind of imagine the results page and and the right letters on that paper, and we think that if that happens, then I will feel accepted. Then I will feel happy and complete. Or we sit in our office chair and we daydream about reaching the top of our organization. Why do we do that? Well, it's because we believe that then we will get that final sense of success and completion. But like the idol Baal, they provide no ultimate answer. They never satisfy like they promise. And the sad irony is that rather than turning from these idols and saying that there must be something wrong with them, we commit to them, don't we? More and more. I've had to ask myself the question, how much am I like the prophets of Baal here? How often do I cry louder and invest myself further and try to convince myself that one day this idol I pursue will pay dividends? But it never does. There's never an answer. You might ask, where are we tempted to do that? Well, there'll be some of us, I'm sure, who will believe that a relationship will finally make us happy and complete. Perhaps we're someone who's tried out relationships in the past, and um, we found out that they've not made us as happy as we thought they would. So we try harder. And some of us end up going from partner to partner, not finding any satisfaction. Or perhaps we're someone who's in a relationship, and we found out that truth, that that cannot give us ultimate meaning and ultimate answers. And so our mind drifts onto fantasies with others, or we begrudge the relationship that we're in. Or there'd be others of us who believe that what we own will make us happy and complete. And we tell ourselves things like that next gadget, that next phone, that next car, that next house, that'll be it. And then, I've done it so often myself, you unwrap the box, you complete the extension, you get the car, and the feeling, it's never as quite as good as you thought it would be. But rather than saying, those things may not satisfy me, maybe I've got things wrong, we commit to them so often, even more strongly, and our minds drift onto the next gadget, the next model. We spend money we haven't got. We take finance, we take credit cards, all to own things that cannot give us what we actually need. See, the fact that the prophets of Baal got no response, it's not a surprise to us, is it, us readers? We know he's a rip-off of the true God, it's obvious. But it's no less true than with our, our idols. They cannot answer. They cannot give us ultimate satisfaction. They're a rip-off. 
Well, moving on to our second point. Elijah enters the contest in verse 30. He um, rebuilds the altar of the Lord, which had been destroyed in the shift towards Baal worship. But it's very interesting. Rather than calling on God to act straight away, he chooses to make things more difficult. He tells the people to drench the altar with water, not once, but three times, so that the sacrifice and the wood and the whole area around it is a mini swimming pool. I mean, it's like entering a boxing match, choosing to to blindfold yourself and tying your hands behind your back. And Elijah prays in verse 36. He says this, O Lord, God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known today that you are God to Israel and that I am your servant and have done all these things at your command. Answer me, O Lord, answer me, so that these people will know that, O Lord, you are God and that you are turning their hearts back again. It's one simple prayer by one lone prophet, the underdog. And it's meant to be a complete contrast to the prayers of the prophets of Baal. See, they cried out for hours. They, they cut themselves to show their devotion. But Elijah's different. He just prays. And God responds to that prayer in verse 38. Then f- the fire of the Lord fell and burned up the sacrifice, the wood, the stones, and the soil, and also licked up the water in the trench. See, as the flames lick up the altar, it is clear, isn't it, who the real God is. Only the Lord is God. Only he can answer. And the prophets of Baal are killed. Now, I just want to deal with that for a minute. Some of us will be asking, I did it myself, why, why, the, prophets, why are the prophets killed? Why not released? And... Um, Come and speak to me about this afterwards, but just to say a few things on that. Elijah is just obeying the law. See, those in the law who spoke for another God and not the Lord faced capital punishment. You might ask why. Well, at this time, Israel is what's called a theocracy. It's kind of religious life and its judicial life were combined. And so to go against the the only God, the, the Lord, is a crime. It's like treason. And it's not the same today. The church should not take action like this. Idolatry is not something that is punished in this way. But the change doesn't mean that it's any less serious. See, this defeat of God's rivals is a foretaste of what will come in the future when he will judge other gods himself and those who devote themselves to them will face his justice. As I say, come and ask me about it afterwards. But I, for the moment, want to get back to Elijah's prayer. See, this simple prayer of Elijah and God's answer show us that God is not like the idols. See, idols require dramatic demonstrations of devotion, and even then, they do not deliver. But God delivers without dramatic devotions. Elijah knows that no manipulation, no twisting of God's arm can make him him act. So he prays in faith. And in Matthew chapter 6, Jesus teaches something similar. Jesus says this, When you pray, do not keep on babbling like the pagans, for they think they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, 
For your Father knows what you need before you ask him. See, because the Lord is real, because he is truly God, he knows what we need, even before the prayer utters, uh, we utter a prayer from our vocal cords. Del Ralph Davis, um, Tim mentioned this guy last week, um, he's written a book on 1 Kings, it's called Wisdom and the Folly, and if you're reading this book, uh, 1 Kings, and you're, you're thinking this is, this is good, I'd like to look at it a bit more closely, this would be a great book to pick up. Um, it's really readable, and it's really kind of connected with everyday life, and um, it'd be great if you wanted to look at that in devotional times or that sort of thing. And uh, on this point, Dale Ralph Davis um, asks whether we've understood that God is his own person, and he acts as he wills. He says that God's actions don't depend on us manipulating him. And Delroth Davis asked this question, and it really challenged me when I looked at it. He says, do we suffer from evangelical Baalism? That is, as Christians and churches, do we think that God will surely act because we do something? To give you a personal example from my own life, um, in a church we were part of in the past, not St. Mary's, uh, me and my wife were sitting in a communion service, and we overheard a, communion, uh, a conversation in front of us. Uh, just after we'd taken the bread and the wine, a lady in front of us turned to the person next to her and said, my friend will get better now. And I don't know exactly what she meant, but it seems that she thought by showing this act of devotion, by going to the communion service, God would surely repay her by healing her friend. Now, I know at St. Mary's we might not put things like that, but, but how often, I do it myself, how often do we think to ourselves that God will be favourable to us because we've done our daily devotions or we've said our prayers or we've led in the youth group or we've given up our annual leave to do camp or we've not given into a temptation or because we've led a house group or because we come to church regularly or even because we're clergy. They're all good things, especially becoming clergy. They're all good things. <laughs> but they become a problem for us, don't they, when our motivation for doing them is that God has to repay us with some act. Why is it a problem, you might ask? Well, first of all, it's not treating God as God. See, instead of worshipping God for who he is, we're worshipping God for what he can give us. And if we've done that, we've made an idol. We're saying that God has to primarily serve our desires and our wants. He has to get behind our agenda before we let him be God in our life. But secondly, it will destroy our assurance. See, the thing is, when God doesn't do what we want, we will think it's because we've not given him the right devotion. Or if we fail to do some of these devotional things, we've not said our prayers enough, we've not... Um, served in a right way, we would suddenly think that God is against us. And that will make our faith very fragile. And Dalruff Davis says this, it's brilliant, I think, he's, I think it's great, this little chapter. He says, do you see the relief that enters your life and ministry when you serve the real God? See, there's a relief, isn't there? when we acknowledge that God is God and he acts as he wills and his action towards us doesn't depend on our manipulating of him. But if this was the end of the story, 
Do you know what? I think this would be pretty terrifying. In fact, terror is the response of the people in verse 39. They fall to the ground and confess that the Lord is God. You know, if this whole incident was just about other gods being nothing and the Lord being God and acting as he wills, then actually it wouldn't be good news for you and me. Because we, like the people, are a people who have strayed after other gods. But wonderfully, there's more to this story. I've read this passage several times. It's one of my favorites. Uh, But only in preparing this talk have I noticed the significance of the altar in verse 30. And it prompted the question for me, why does this all take place around an altar? I mean, why not have a contest like let's make fire appear in a bush or each of us turns a stick into a snake or let's both try and part the seas? I mean, why have a contest with an altar? And the answer I came to is this. It's showing us that there is a way back from idolatry, a way to be blessed by God. What do I mean by that? Well, the altar was a place for sacrifice. Rather than God destroying his people because of their sins, he provided sacrifices and they covered their sins. It was like an umbrella that shielded them from the heat of God's judgment. And the altar and sacrifices were good news, for it meant that the people could be in relationship with God and they could experience his blessing. But with Ahab, that had ended. The the Lord's altar, we're told, had been torn down. But in verse 30, Elijah rebuilds the altar. It's impressive that, isn't it? Even after the people and the king all rejected God, the altar is rebuilt. Elijah's showing us that despite the idolatry, despite all they've done, there is a way back. God will bless his people again. And as the fire falls and burns up this sacrifice, we see that happen. The rains return in verse 44. This nation, despite its idolatry, despite its frequent turning from the Lord, experiences God's kindness and God's blessing again. And God's altar on Mount Carmel points to an even greater altar, on Mount Calvary. See, on Mount Carmel, Elijah cut up a ball, placed it on the altar, and the fire of God fell on the sacrifice. But on Mount Calvary, the greater Elijah sacrificed himself, and the fire of his father's judgment for the world fell on him. As the flames licked up the sacrifice on Mount Carmel, God's judgment ceased and his blessings returned. And as the nails entered Jesus' hands, and as he breathed his last, God's judgment was dealt with, and his blessings secured for multitudes, for eternity. There were two altars on Carmel. One to the idol, which didn't work. And that altar reminds us that idols always require huge personal sacrifices but do not lead to the blessings we ultimately need and crave. But there was another altar. There was an altar to the true God, 
the altar of the Lord which points to the altar shaped like a cross. And it's on this altar that God placed himself to give us the blessings that can truly satisfy, to give us himself. Last week we saw in verse 21, Elijah say to the people, he said this, verse 21, how long will you waver between two opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him, but if Baal is God, follow him. But the people said nothing. And that question, it jumps out to us as readers, and it asks that question, that question's asked of us. Will we identify with the Lord who demonstrates that he himself is God? Now, if we're not a Christian, if we're not sure we're a Christian, this might not be where we are this evening. But I'd love you to ask yourself this question. That ideal, that kind of dream you tell yourself, that thing you live for, will it actually give what you think it will? I mean, in your heart of heart, when you lay in bed at night, ask yourself, where will it take you? Because God shows here that if you're living for anything outside him, it will not deliver the satisfaction he can. But he's willing to forgive. He's willing to restore, and he will satisfy your heart. And for us Christians, the question is this, will you identify with the Lord? He's shown us that he is the only God. And if we believe that, I think we do need to repent of going to other gods, of breaking that first commandment, that we shall have no other gods but him. And if we do that, he shows us that he will not let us down. He, 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 he is truly God, and he will restore us, he will forgive us, and he will bless us again. Let's pray. Then the fire of the Lord fell and burned up the sacrifice, the wood and the stones and the soul, and also licked up the water in the trench. Our Heavenly Father, we confess that you are God. And we're sorry, Father, for when we make our own gods. Please reveal to us, Father, by your Spirit, where we do that in our hearts, where we've broken your first commandment, and we ask, Father, that instead of those things, we would turn to you, the true and living God, who reveals himself to be gracious and merciful time and time again. Father, if our hearts have strayed, please reignite them with love towards you. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.